Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Casey breaks down Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. So last week, uh, well, maybe not last week, the last two messages. Let's, let me recap the last two messages so you see where we're at in the narrative. It's really important. We looked at two definitive moments in the life of Moses, two majorly definitive moments, one major mistake. And if you remember the last time that I preached to you, I preached to you about Moses, the man, the myth, and the murderer. And we took a lot of time and and we looked at Moses um, and what was going on in Moses's mind as he killed the Egyptian who was beating his fellow Hebrew. And, and we looked at essentially the cost of isolation that had Moses not been alone and had been in a godly community, perhaps maybe somebody would have said, Moses, don't do this stupid thing that you're about to do. But instead he was isolated and alone. We looked at the cost of impatience. We looked at the cost of revenge. We saw Moses. He wasn't just having a momentary lapse of judgment, although he certainly was that this was very methodical and it was thought out. Acts chapter seven tells us that Moses, when he killed the Egyptian, he actually was thinking, okay, now is the time for deliverance. God is giving me the keys to deliver our nation. It's, this is the time, I'm the guy. And he actually goes back to his brethren after killing the Egyptians. And Acts chapter seven tells us that he assumed that they understood that their time for deliverance was at hand. But Moses made a dramatic error, and it was not the time. Though he was the man, though he had waited patiently for 40 years, he was wrong in his timing. We read Acts chapter 7, just so you see I'm not making it up. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brother and the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance Uh, for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And we left that narrative with Moses being chased out of the land of Egypt into a place called Midian. Egypt representing uh, the place of, of comfort and pleasure. And Midian actually is a barren and rocky environment. It is a desert And he leaves the place of comfort. He leaves the place of reputation. And he goes to a land that nobody knows him that's extraordinarily uncomfortable. He would stay there for the next 40 years of his life. He shows up in Midian at 40. He doesn't leave Midian until he's 80. That means he had 40 years to dwell on his past. 40 years to replay the biggest mistake over and over 40 years of thinking had i just had i just not had the outburst of anger had i just kept silent had i just inquired of the lord before striking down the egyptian maybe my life would have been different you got to see cuz moses he knew his entire life that he was the man to deliver the nation So he had 40 years of dreaming what it was going to be like when God used him to do something spectacular and he had to give up all of that dream. In one moment of poor judgment, his entire life was changed. And that's not a sermon that a lot of people will preach. 
because it doesn't seem to illustrate grace, but it is very true. And it's something that you and I should, uh, should always have in the forefront of our mind. Yeah, you may be in your 20s. You may be in your late teens, but I'm going to tell you now, you can make decisions out of impatience, out of insecurity, out of uh, desire for pleasure that will affect the rest of your life. And perhaps there's even no going back. That should be sobering. One momentary lapse of judgment could affect the rest of your life. And though God certainly covers all of your eternal punishment, he does not cover your earthly consequences. And that's a, that's a really important truth. Galatians chapter six says this, that do not be deceived. What a man sows, he will reap because God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And Moses is the perfect illustration because he has one momentary lapse of judgment because he fails to inquire of the Lord at the right time. It's going to cost him 40 years. 40 years. Not six months. Not a semester of school. Not a year. But the entire prime of his life. And that should, again, cause us deep sobriety. So for 40 years, Moses is no doubt replaying that message. For no, no doubt for 40 years, Moses is replaying that instant. Assuming, because he hasn't heard from God in 40 years, assuming that he screwed up so bad that God was done with him. And at this stage, he's 80 years old. And the Bible says that he has nothing to show for his life. He's so poor that he doesn't even have a flock of sheep to herd of his own, that he has to herd the flock of his father-in-law. And at 80, washed up, weak, hopeless, God shows up in the form of a burning bush to recommission Moses into the dream that he had given up on. It's absolutely stunning. John uh, preached last uh, two weeks ago on this burning bush encounter on, on what Moses must have been feeling as God was, was calling him to go and to bring his people to deliverance. And today what we're going to focus on is I'm going to focus on the conversation that takes place between God and Moses. The title of the message is Insight into Insecurity. Insight into insecurity. And this is perhaps where you, definitely me, I find myself most identifying with Moses more than any other Bible character because of this conversation that he's having with the burning bush. God is sitting here calling him, go back to Egypt, go get my people, tell Pharaoh to let him go. Now you would think that if you're Moses, and you haven't heard from God in 40 years, and all of a sudden he shows up in burning bush, tells you to take off your shoes, and starts calling you, giving you encouragement, telling you how awesome you are. Moses, I see you. I see the affliction of my people. It's time to go, man. Let's go. You would think that in that moment, Moses is like, oh yeah, it's on. Been waiting 80 years for this. But he doesn't. And what we're going to find is instead he gives five excuses as to why God's made a mistake. Five excuses as to why he can't do what the Lord's calling him to do. And I wanna give you a premise that just should just taint the rest of the message. Inaction out of rebellion is no different than inaction out of insecurity. 
inaction, out of rebellion. God shows up to you, says, I want you to do this. And you say, no. And you harden your heart. I don't want to do what you want to do. I want to do my own life. That's no different than God showing up and calling you to do something spectacular and you with your false humility or me with my false humility going, no, Lord, it can't possibly be. Not me, not me, not me. Both lead to an action. And today we're going to see Moses isn't rebellious in a hardened sense. He's rebellious with false humility. And it's actually going to cost him. So this conversation with the Lord, um, I'm going to read it to you. It's going to be up on your screen. Um, You can find it in uh, Exodus uh, 3 and in Exodus 4. um, But the narrative is kind of choppy. And so I've done what I tend to do, which is kind of take out some of the filler stuff and just give you the narrative points, condense them together, and we're going to read it. So just so you see that I don't make stuff up or twist scripture or do eisegesis, I want you on your own time to go and read Exodus 3, Exodus 4, so you can see I'm not making it up. Amen? All right, if you'll throw it on the screen, here's the conversation. See if you can identify the five excuses that Moses gives. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. Therefore, come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me? What if they will not listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses answered, a staff. Then God said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it to the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. They may believe that they may, I'm sorry, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob have appeared to you. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? What makes him mute or deaf? or seeing, or blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, please, Lord, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Now, just a translation um, factor. Um, I'm reading the New American Standard, uh, but every other translation actually reads that last line a little differently, and I'm going to read it for you. Please, Lord, now send the message by someone else. So Lord, we, uh, we come to your word asking that it would pierce the deepest parts of our soul. Asking God to be transformed by it. May the word disciple us this evening. May it help form Christ in us this evening. 
And Lord, for all of us in the room who need to be encouraged, I ask that you would give us courage. For all of us in the room who need a kick in the pants, we say you have the freedom to do that too. Come and do your will. In the name of Jesus, amen. So many of you, you find yourself in the same place that Moses no doubt found himself. You find yourself with clear direction and a clear dream for your life from the Lord. Now this could be like, like a big thing, like the Lord's gonna give you revival uh, across college campuses. The Lord's gonna send revival to the GBI. Or it could be something really small, but it's still clear. Break up with the girl. Get up in the morning and read your Bible. Listen to your mom and dad. It could be small, it could be large, but regardless, you know what I'm talking about, it's clear. It's clear. And often what we find is when the Lord gives us these big spectacular things like, like you're gonna help usher in revival for a generation. You're gonna see revival in your family. You're gonna see your parents saved. You're gonna see your school saved. Anything like that, we immediately... If you're anything like me, become Moses and you start laying out the case for why you're not the guy. Out of insecurity, you've been dwelling on all of your sins, all of your failures, all of your mistakes, everything that Moses did. And when God finally shows up and says, it's time you go, I don't think I can. And for that person in the room, that's who I want to minister to tonight. For the person who's deeply affected by their own failures, by their own mistakes, by their own issues, by their own weaknesses, you're the one. This whole message is for you. I want to give you five Christian excuses for rebellion. And I'm going to use Moses' five excuses. These are the most common excuses we find for a Christian's rebellion, or perhaps we might say it like this, a Christian's disobedience, because rebellion seems strong, right? These are five reasons that you, as an insecure Christian who's failed, who's messed up, who's made all kinds of mistakes, whose sin is forever in their face, these are five reasons that you may not go, five reasons that you may not do what the Lord's asking you to do. And the hope is that you will come out of these and realize, yeah, God actually gets the final word over you. You don't. Here's the first thing that Moses says. Go to verse uh, 11 in chapter three. He says, I'm a nobody. God says, therefore, come now and I will send to you Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. In other words, I'm a nobody. I'm just some 80-year-old broken shepherd living in the desert with no money to my name, with no hope and no future. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? Now, here's the thing. In each of these excuses, God actually gives a response. And we're going to look at each response, and it's really kind, especially for the first four. The fifth, the fifth uh, response of the Lord, it's not kind at all. It's very, it's very hard to hear. 
But the first four, God's like, like, he's like in it, man. He's like, Moses, I understand. I understand that your sin's ever before you. I understand that you need a little pep in your step. I understand you. You need some courage and I'm here with you. And this is where we're going to start. He says, who am I? I want to talk to you about being a nobody because this is the first thing that Moses says. He says, I'm a nobody. And I want, and here's the deal. This is one of the primary factors, this idea of being a nobody. This is one of the primary factors that actually qualifies you to be used in the kingdom. This very excuse that Moses is giving as a disqualification factor is actually the very thing that's qualifying him before the Lord. Moses says, I'm a nobody. And this is really important for you and I to hear because Moses is actually doing Sermon on the Mount right now. The Beatitudes starts out like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit for there shall be the kingdom. Moses has gotten somehow in the desert over these 40 years, this concept that we call around here spiritual poverty. And it's the idea that I actually am a nobody. That without Jesus, I have nothing. I am nothing. I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to give. Everything that is good is Jesus and everything that is bad is me and it's sin. And that's actually a healthy place to be. Of course, the enemy takes it and he runs with it. He makes you feel insecure. We don't want to do that. But Moses is actually very, he doesn't even realize that he's qualifying himself by saying, who am I? And I have conversations with people all of the time. Oh my word, I literally have them like every week where you guys will be like, listen, I don't, I don't feel qualified to do this. And the second you feel qualified, I'm gonna tell you is the second you're not. You want God to use you? You wanna see amazing things happen? You don't, ha- you don't get that without spiritual poverty. Without the understanding and without the heart posture that says, Lord, I actually am a nobody. And it's not, it's not this, this a self-deprecating thing. It's just good truth and understanding that we are fallen, that we have fallen short of the glory of God, that everything that comes out of our heart is wicked and deceitful. But God, he uses the brokenhearted. God uses the weak ones. God uses the misfits. And here's the greatest thing is what you'll see when you look at, when you look at God throughout, not just Moses, but throughout the narrative of scripture, God actually has a type of person that he uses. Now, here's the thing. You and I, we think God has a type. And we think that the type of person that God likes to use, that God likes to bless, that God likes to use to lead major revivals and revolutions and renaissances, we think that that person has to be attractive, charismatic, and gifted. But what you'll find is that God rarely calls that person. Moses, he's no Stephen Furtick. He's no Mike Todd. No shade on either of those guys. But listen, if we're honest, we look at those guys. We look at the people that, uh, like maybe an Andy Bird, or we look, at, we look at everybody through this lens of, oh man, they're just awesome. They're just gifted. And what you'll find is that God doesn't care if you're gifted. God doesn't care if you're charismatic. God cares about your heart. He cares that you've embraced a lifestyle of spiritual poverty. And he cares that you're weak. Paul, he makes this brilliant declaration to the Corinthian church. He says that, listen, I have learned to boast not in my gifts, 
not in my character, not in my, my talents. I have learned to boast in my weakness for when I am weak, he is made strong. And there are so many of you, you have bought the lie of the Western culture that says, if God's going to use you, you have to fit this mold. You have to fit the American church mold. You gotta, you gotta look the part. You gotta have the great gift. You gotta, man, you gotta, you gotta look just like, I'm gonna say it's Stephen Furtick again. I like Stephen Furtick, by the way. There's just no shame, right? But listen, you don't have to look like that. You don't have to act like that. You've gotta have character. You've gotta embrace spiritual poverty and you've gotta be willing. If you do those things, there is no limit to what God will do through you. That is God's preferred type of leadership and of leader. If you look through all throughout scripture, the disciples, there's some of my favorite examples of this. See, here's the thing about the disciples. We don't, we don't see it in scripture, but we know it because we know the culture. Here's the thing about the disciples. They were the unwanted ones. You see, this is how things would work back in uh, Jesus's day is, is all of the rabbis would walk around and they would choose a disciple and they would choose a small group of people in which they were going to mentor and disciple into Pharisees. And this group of 12 that Jesus chose, they were the ones who didn't get chosen by any other rabbi. They were the misfits. They were the ones that the religious institution looked at and said, yeah, you're probably never gonna be something. And so what does Jesus do? He goes, oh, I can use a nobody. And there are so many of you in the room, you literally feel like a nobody all of the time and you feel disqualified all of the time. And perhaps you're like Moses, you feel disqualified because you've made mistakes, because you've zigged when you should have zagged, because you had a character, a lapse of character judgment. Here's the thing, Moses murdered a man. Just let it sink in, he murdered somebody. And God still said, yeah, I want to use you. So for all of you in the room, you feel disqualified. Good, so do I. We are all disqualified. That is the truth. Not a single person has anything to stand on before the Lord. Don't look at Billy. Don't look at Jeff. Don't look at me. Don't look at Furtick. Don't look at uh, Andy Bird. Don't look at any of the people that you look up to and think that person's more qualified to do what they're doing than I am because it's not true. Before the eyes of the Lord, we are all disqualified and it's actually embracing that, making peace with that, that's going to qualify you, okay? Moses says, I'm a nobody. And I love God's response to him. He says this, he goes, I will be with you is you will lead my people and you will worship God at this mountain. By the way, this, this burning bush experience, it's happening on Mount Sinai. That should be immediately ringing some bells for you. Immediately, you should be thinking about all the other amazing things that happen on Mount Sinai. He goes, I'll be with you. In other words, yeah, you may be a nobody, but when you're with me, you're a somebody. And as long as I'm with you, Moses, you're fine. Isn't that a kind response, God? You're giving an excuse to why you can't do the things God's telling you to do. And he's like, it's okay, man, I'm with you. I got you. We'll do this thing together. I'll even give you a little sign. That way you won't doubt. But then Moses gives another excuse. This is another common excuse for the Christian to disobey. He says, they won't even believe me. Uh, verse 1a in chapter four. What if they will not believe me? And often this takes two different forms or a few different forms. Um, this may sound something like they'll think I'm insane. 
I'll look crazy. They don't even trust me. They wouldn't trust me. And they certainly would never follow me. It's the same excuse that you and I give often for why we won't do the thing or take the step that the Lord's asking us to take. I won't minister to that person. They wouldn't believe me anyway, Lord. I'm untrustworthy because of my past or because of my history. This person knows me too well and they know that I'm unstable. There's no way they're gonna believe me. It's an excuse. It's pointless. Perhaps this is what we'll say. Uh, it's pointless and useless. It's, it's futile to, to put myself out there like that, to work that hard, to risk that much when I already know they won't listen. And God's response is, is actually pretty cool. He says, he gives this lengthy response. He says, I'll perform miracles. They'll believe you. I'll perform miracles. Signs and wonders follow the proclamation of the gospel. Here's the idea. So many of us in the American church, my own tribe, the people I love, we love doing, we love our, our, our charismatic tribe. We lead with signs and wonders and Jesus didn't do that. Signs and wonders follow the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, you go and you go in faith and signs and wonders come after. We don't lead with that. Typically when you lead with that, it doesn't work. Often somebody's just simply amazed and they're not changed. We got to lead with the preaching of the gospel. So God tells Moses, hey, you go, you give the message, you tell Pharaoh to let my people go and I'll perform miracles. Well, what's the third lie or the third excuse? He says, first one or the, uh, the second one was they won't believe me. The third one is a little similar. They won't listen to me. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? In other words, what happens if they don't listen, Lord. They may hear me. They may pat me on the head. They may listen to me and engage for a moment, but at the end of the day, they're not going to follow what I'm asking them. And again, God says, I'll perform miracles. Well, I wanna to go to the fourth one. This, is, uh, this one's super interesting to me. And this is honestly, I think, the, where we, most of us live. I'm not skilled enough. This is uh, chapter four, verses 10 through 13. Then Moses said to the Lord, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Okay, this should strike you if you remember the message two weeks ago, because do you remember how Acts chapter seven describes Moses? That he was known for being powerful in word and deed. That when Moses was in Egypt, he was trained by the best schools and was the greatest leader outside of Pharaoh himself and had a reputation for being powerful in word and in deed. And now here's the thing, 40 years in a desert season will do this to you. You'll start second guessing what the Lord's hidden inside of you. Things that you knew to be true, that, the, that, that God formed a skill inside of you. 40 years of dryness and dullness and 40 years of, of pain and suffering will cause you to second guess. And so here you have Moses who's 80 years old who has forgotten who he used to be. And he says, Lord, you know, I can't speak well, but he doesn't just say that. He goes, you know, I've never spoken well. And according to Acts chapter seven, that's a lie. Moses, at this stage, 
He's old. He's past his prime. He's uncharismatic. He's insecure. And he's unskilled. And I talked to you earlier about the type of person that God often likes to use. And that's where Moses finds himself. And so many of you, you think because you don't have a skill in something or you don't have a natural bend towards something that God can't use you in it. And I'm just going to tell you, God is really not uh, concerned about your lack of skill in an area. He's far more concerned about your willingness. You know how I know? Because skills are called gifts. And you only have a gift because God gave it to you. Okay? So if you go and you're like, I feel like I'm called to preach, but you're like, I don't know if I really have a preaching gifting. I don't sound as good as this guy. What do I do? You be obedient and you go and God's going to give you the gift. If he doesn't give you the gift, then maybe you're not called. Who knows? But you need to be willing. The kind of person that God uses is those who embrace spiritual poverty. And God is so, so kind because he's answered every excuse with compassion. And here he's getting ready to do the same thing. This is what he says. He says, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then, go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. And that's a message for some of you right now in the room. You are sitting there having your burning bush encounter in your quiet time and you feel like the Lord's calling you to do something and you're going, Lord, that I can't do that. Lord, I can't do that. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And he goes, if you'll go, I'll give you the words. And that's another premise that you and I have to understand is often the Lord tells you to go first and then he gives you the words in the moment. But that's not how we like to do things. If we're honest, we want to get the words and then we want to go. And what I have found more often than not, when the Lord wants to use me in any kind of ministry capacity, typically outside of just a sermon, but any kind of like, hey, we're in a prophetic moment, the Lord will not give it to me. It's simply a, you got this thing, your heart's fluttering, go talk to him. And I'm like, oh God, I don't know what I'm going to say. And I walk up to him and I kind of flounder, but somehow they, they get the word and it's awesome and God gets all the glory. Listen, don't feel like because you don't have the words, you can't go. Because look what, look what he says. Now then go, and I, even I, will be your mouth, and I will teach you what you are about to say. Now again, these first excuses are common for those of us with insecurity issues. For those of us who have struggled, who have a, who have a major past, or those of us who feel disqualified. But this is where it turns, and the narrative gets real dicey. Because God's kind, and each, each excuse, he has a great answer. I'll be with you. I'll perform miracles. I'll give you the words. We'll do this together, Moses. It's going to be great. Then Moses hits excuse number five. Someone else would do it better. Now, here's the thing. If you feel that, you just need to know what you're saying is God's made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever else you will. God doesn't like disobedience. He doesn't like it when it's out of a hardened heart of rebellion, but he also doesn't like it when it's out of an inferiority complex. 
Here's what I'm realizing is the devil doesn't need to get you to hate God to rebel against him. He just has to get you to hate yourself. I'm going to say that again. The devil doesn't need to get you to hate God to rebel against him. He just needs you to hate yourself. And if you can get to the place where you don't look at yourself through the eyes of God, you will have a great excuse to never do any of the things God's asking you to do. God doesn't need to get you to doubt God or the devil doesn't need to get you to doubt God to rebel against him. He just needs to get you to doubt yourself. Rebellion out of insecurity is no different than rebellion out of anger because the result is the same. And so here's what I'm getting at. You and I, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, we have no excuse for disobedience. None. The Lord says, go. You don't get to be the accuser of yourself and pull out your list and start to negotiate with the Lord and say, Lord, I think you've made a mistake because did you not see that I did this, 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 and this? Surely there's someone who can do it better. Now, again, God's had a gracious excuse or a gracious response to the first four excuses, right? I'll be with you. Miracles. Tell him, I'm, tell him my name. It's going to be great. But this is when the entire narrative switches and I want to read it to you because it is so sobering. The divine response, Exodus chapter four, verses 14 through 16. This is immediately the next verse. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Everything was good. He was allowing Moses to wrestle with his insecurity. But when that wrestling led to surrender, God got angry. He got real angry. It says, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. And he said, is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? Now, I, wanna, I just want to pause right here. It's easy to read this scripture with a, with a very stoic attitude. The first verse we just read is that God is angry. Did you see it? Burning with anger. Okay. That leads me to believe that the preceding verses should be read with a tone of anger. Fair? So think about this. Burning bush is now burning against you. God's pissed. Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I, even I will be with your mouth and his mouth and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you and the people and he will be as a mouth for you and you will be as God to him. Now, this is one of my favorite narratives in scripture because it's one that can be missed if you're not careful. So this whole series, we're looking at the life of Moses intertwined with the life of Moses is the life of another significant character in the Bible. His name is Aaron. This is where we're introduced to him. Aaron would go on to become the very first high priest at the tabernacle of Moses. Okay, that's a big deal, right? He would have a, a staff that, that buds and ends up in the Ark of the Covenant next to the, the, the Ten Commandments. Big deal. But here's the thing about Aaron. Aaron was plan B, not plan A. There's a reason that God called Moses and didn't call Aaron. 
See, God's over here pleading with Moses. Moses, I'm calling you. Go, be the deliverer. Moses is like, I don't know if I can. No, it's okay, I'm with you. Okay, but what if they don't listen to me? No, it's okay, they'll listen to you. What if they don't believe? No, no, they'll believe you. Okay, well, I, I, I can't speak. It's okay, I'll speak for you. No, you know what? You've got the wrong guy. Fine. Then I'll choose Aaron. That's what we just read. Now you could say, well, wait a second. I thought Aaron was a great guy. I am convinced that this decision right here, because of Moses' inferiority and insecurity, is the primary reason that the children of Israel died in the desert and didn't go to the promised land. Now you're like, how on earth do you get that from the text? Here's the thing. If you know the narrative, you know that Moses and Aaron, they work together. Aaron's gonna be the mouthpiece. They're gonna go to Pharaoh. The 10 plagues are gonna happen. Pharaoh's heart's gonna be hardened. You guys remember that? They're gonna make their way out of Egypt and they're going to come to Mount Sinai where God's going to establish a covenant with his people. And in this covenant, he says, listen, I've got a, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm gonna lead you to the place of promise because God's always desired a home and a home consists of a people and a place. And he says, I've chosen you and I've chosen your people. And as God is up there on, in Exodus 30, or, uh, yeah, God is up on the mountain in Exodus 32 with Moses. Mount Sinai, it's this, this stunning, this thunder and, and God and Moses is literally in the presence of God. Something's happening down on the mountain below. And Aaron has caved to man's expectations, to man's desires. See, Moses was gone for a long time and Aaron goes, and they start looking to Aaron and they say, Aaron, we don't know if Moses is gonna come back. We need a leader. Not only do we need a leader, we need you to be our leader. And, and, and because you're our leader, you're, you're supposed to give us our God. We need a God. And so Aaron, this Aaron, who was plan B, who was not supposed to be the mouthpiece for Moses, but is only there because Moses refused to do what God called him to do, says, I have an idea. Go get all your jewelry. We're gonna melt it. We're gonna make a golden calf out of it and that'll be our God and we'll worship the golden calf. And here's where it gets really interesting is God, his anger starts to burn against his people. And he says, I just gave you the 10 commandments. I just made a covenant with you. What are you doing? And he gives a stunning declaration to Moses. Because remember, Moses is up there on the mountain with God. They're down there worshiping the golden calf. And he says to Moses, Leave me alone that I may burn in my anger. These people are stiff-necked and obstinate. Let me kill them all. He says, leave me alone that I may do my will to destroy the people and to start over with you, Moses. Now that's a stunning, stunning slice of the pie, isn't it? Think about that. And I've watched commentators wrestle and not touch that. And the ones who do touch that scene, they get real squirrely with it real fast. And they start saying things like this. Well, God was testing Moses to see if Moses really loved his people. And that's wrong. God's not going to test you by asking you to disobey his will. God very clearly said, leave me be that I may do my will and destroy the people and start over again with you, Moses. 
But then Moses, it's called Moses' entreaty, if you read it in your Bible. It's this, you know, it's this kind of glorious thing where we make Moses out to be something that he's not. And Moses walks up to the Lord and he goes, no, Lord, remember your promise. Remember your people. Don't kill them. Have mercy on them. And those are all good things, amen? The only problem is God was very clear what his will was. He said, they're stiff-necked, they're obstinate, they're so hardened, Moses. The only way forward, the only way to have a people and a place is I've got to start over again. We'll make you Abraham. But Moses loved his people and was more committed to his people than he was the will of the Lord. And he says that God changed his mind and said, fine, have it your way. And that's a stunning, stunning piece of the narrative because God had already said they're hardened, they're stiff-necked, they're obstinate. They won't make it, Moses. And you know how the story of Moses ends? Him dying on the mountain, overlooking the promised land that he never got in because his people didn't have the faith. They were too stiff-necked and obstinate. And all of it goes all the way back to this moment at the burning bush when Moses, with false humility and insecurity, giving lots of good excuses as to why he couldn't do what God told him to do. It's stunning and it's so sobering and convicting because, Moses, listen, Moses wasn't rebellious and angry. He wasn't hardened towards the Lord. He was hardened towards himself. And because of that, God said, fine, have it your way. I'll make air in your mouthpiece. This isn't what I wanted. In this moment, Moses started wrong and it caused him to fail. And there'd be many opportunities along the way for Moses to, 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 to come back to the Lord and to, and, and, and to see the whole thing redeemed and it never would. One of them is when Joshua and Caleb, one of two of the 12 spies, were, they, they came back from scouting out the land. Remember that? And 10 of the 12 spies the 10 stiff-necked and obstinate people. They said, no, there's no way God's giving us this land. Matter of fact, we should go back to Egypt. And in that moment, Moses had an opportunity. Do I listen to the stiff-necked and obstinate people or do I choose the two guys of faith and he chose stiff-necked and obstinate? So God even offered him redemption in that multiple times, but he doesn't choose it. And it all boils down to this moment with Moses at the bush. Now we're gonna look, not now, but we're gonna, in this series, we're gonna look at Aaron because what I just explained to you, Aaron sounds like an absolute putz, right? Like there's no hope for Aaron. What we're gonna see is you and I actually are, are very similar to Aaron and God redeems his ark as well. But just because he redeems his ark doesn't mean he makes it into, the God, into God's promise. Moses and Aaron would die without seeing the fruition of God's promise. And I'm convinced it's all because Moses was too insecure to do what God was asking him to do. Here's the final, I wanna give you three final observations on this narrative. These are brief. Um, Moses didn't go to the nations, he went home. And, and here's, here's what I'm saying. Moses' home was actually Egypt. Moses' home was 
if you want to get technical, probably Goshen in Egypt. He left for a season, 40 years, and God told him to go home to do mission. And, and here's the point that I want to make. Many of us, we, we, we feel this tug and we feel this pull to do missions overseas. And we feel like the most radical thing that we can do for the Lord is to go give our life as a martyr overseas, maybe to an unreached people group. And I love that. We have a, a school here called uh, Gate City Global that sends people to go to the hardest and darkest. And I absolutely love that. But here's, can I just tell you my, my concern? Is we tend to send our best to the other nations and we forget that America needs Jesus too and America needs missionaries. And so I've started changing my language a little bit. People ask, what do you do? I'll say, uh, well, I'm technically a pastor, but really I'm a missionary to Laodicea. You see, that's where you and I live. Laodicea, where the church is neither hot nor cold. They're, they're lukewarm and they need to be called out. They need to be ministered to. They need to be shown the whole gospel. And here's the thing is if everybody goes overseas, what the heck's gonna happen here? And I just want to give a little gentle call to some of you to join me as a missionary to America for the love of God. America needs Jesus, not the government. I don't care about the government, the people. The people here are lost and hurting and broken and they've gotten a, just enough religion to satiate something, but nothing to transform them. And they need Jesus. And I think it's telling that here, God sends Moses home to go get his people. The second observation, just random observation I want to make about this is that Moses couldn't lead people where he first hadn't gone. Moses would spend 40 years in Midian where Mount Sinai would be, 40 years in the desert. And it was almost as if God was saying, I've got to get you familiar with the territory here. I've got to give you suffering, grief, and affliction here so that you know how to lead these people when they enter it. That's actually biblical. Paul would say, hey, we were given affliction so that we can comfort you in your affliction. It's stunning. And then the third, the burning bush is a foreshadowing of the cross. I'm going to read a quote from David Guzik. He's a really good Bible scholar. You can go to his website, EnduringWord.com, if you ever... Uh, if you ever need like Bible study tools, EnduringWord.com, he has a whole commentary and he just breaks down everything. Nothing super in-depth, but it's really helpful. This is what he says. He says, um, yet we can also say that the burning bush was a picture of the cross. The Hebrew word used to describe this bush is, uh, comes from the word to stick or to prick. This meaning a thorn bush or a bramble. We can think of the cross where Jesus crowned with thorns endured the fires of judgment and yet was not consumed by them and be reminded of the cross when we considered the burning bush. Jesus, the light of the world, crowned with thorns, consumed by the fires of judgment, yet not destroyed by them, gets the final word over us. God speaking at the burning bush didn't bring up Moses' sin, his issues, his insecurities. God didn't disqualify him at the burning bush, but qualified him, all speaking of the cross. You see, Jesus wearing 
That crown of thorns being raised up on the mountain of Calvary, set ablaze by the judgments of God, was in fact the burning bush shining, not just for one man to see as an exodus, but all men to see, not just leading to a nation being freed from bondage, but the entire earth. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.